I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Shutter music. All right, guys, welcome back to uh, the Bird Calls podcast. It's me, Zachary Janda, hosting. I've got the keys all to myself now. I'm even happy to produce this bad boy with uh, Evan Sachs of the Daily Reveille. And he's a columnist for our sister, cousin, brother site, uh, and the Valley Shook. Evan, how are we related site-wise? Um, we are both under SB Nation. That's about all I really know. I'm, We're I'm both under new. SB Nation. We're SB Nationers. Uh, Evan writes columns for and the valley shook and he is the news editor for uh the daily reveille from my beloved alma mater louisiana state university johnny if you're listening uh lsu over tulane forever and ever okay so evan is first of all he's a must follow for any of you guys that love uh the saints the pelicans i'm scott trout ceo of the domestic litigation firm cordell and cordell we help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. And are just a fan of petty Atlanta Falcon jokes. That's partially why I follow Evan. So... We'll talk Saints-Falcons towards the end of this, but we're going to talk uh, Pelicans first. So, Evan, we're about, what, 30, 31 games into the season. The Pelicans just dipped below 500 at 15 and 16 now, I believe. So what are your thoughts so far on this season? This last loss to Washington really hurt because I was really thinking that it was time to start betting on the Pelicans because up until that loss, they had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine games where they alternated wins and losses, no matter who the opponent. So I was starting to think maybe we're just destined for 41 and 41, and I can start betting knowing that we're going to win and lose, but now we've dropped two straight. And really, it's, I think it's time to officially say they're underachieving and something has to be done. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, it, and it's frustrating because – I think they're underachieving, but just ever slightly so. But the thing about having this roster and all this pressure attached to this season, you can't even afford to be slightly underachieving. You have to get this right because New Orleans basketball doesn't get chances like they do with Davis and Cousins ever. Um, and they just they have to get this fixed. Um, I'm looking at the schedule now, and maybe – Maybe things will get better because I'm looking at, a, at an away game at Orlando, then at Miami. You come back home for Brooklyn, uh, Dallas, New York, and then you go, to, you go to Utah. But I think Rudy Gobert might still be out for that game. So I'm looking at that schedule. I see one, two, three, four. Honestly, you can win five out of six games. 
Yeah, and I mean, the whole time where we've been middling around 500 early this season, I've been looking at the schedule and saying, like, look, just get three out of these four, and we're good. Just get four out of these five, and then they always pull something that messes it all up where, you know, Davis gets ejected versus Minnesota in a game that we were looking pretty good early on. Then we play Utah on the road, and we're looking good early on, and then Davis gets hurt. And, it, you know, it's all we're up 20 on Golden State at halftime. We should have beat Sacramento. You know, you look at all these games, and they just find a way to stay aggressively average when you look at and you look at the schedule and say, you know, they should win this many out of this many games. But these next five or six, like you were just talking about, this has to be it. If they cannot string together a couple wins here, if they cannot win – four or five out of these six, then I don't know when they are going to do it and when they will ever put it together. Yeah, and it's just – it's frustrating yeah. because you look at the roster, I mean, you, and you have Anthony Davis, you have DeMarcus Cousins, and you, and you now have Rajon Rondo and Drew Holiday's finding his shot being in that two-guard spot. And you just think, okay, this should be working now, but they just can't string together any successive games of – excellent basketball it's like you said earlier it's just you get one game then you drop one you get one game then you drop another you might get two but then you take a step back I just what's what's been the killing them I it's turnovers it's defense what's what's your biggest beef with the Pelicans so far it's that you know they will the thing about them is that they have really shown confidence in just about every facet of the game where you know early on like David, you know, the famous thing for Pelicans fans is, okay, well, when Blank gets back, you know, last season it was, okay, well, when Drew gets back and Tyreek gets back, then we got a team. Early on the season it was, okay, when Rondo gets back, we'll be good. And then he gets back and stuff gets better, you know, ball movement gets better, scoring from Drew and Etwan gets better, but then the turnovers, and it's like, you know, there's always just, and then we are winning, but we're winning close. You know, we beat – um Milwaukee, even though we had 20-some turnovers, and we say, well, you know what? Just cut down on the turnovers, and you win every game. You know, it's like, well, we say, like, okay, stop doing this one thing, but then you get to the point with really the turnover at this point with can they stop it? Will they yeah. ever stop? Because you cut down on that, you assume everything else goes right, and this team wins 75% of its games. And it's just they're just so sloppy with the ball, and you just don't know, is it – it can't be low basketball IQ is because you have Rondo and you have these guys that should know better, but just for whatever reason, they just make these, these dumb passes, these lazy passes. They're not paying attention. They get their pockets picked. And like you said, going back to when so-and-so gets back, like, are we really at the point now where we're, we're, we're having to base or we have to bank on Solomon Hill coming back. Solomon Hill's not going to change the season. Maybe they get better defensively, but He's not going to be that missing dimension, is he? I just think it's – I think back to the moment when – I think it was sometime in July that we found out he was going to be out for an extended period of time. And I thought about all last season. We were like, man, Solomon Hill is terrible. I can't stand Solomon Hill. And then the minute he gets injured, we say, man, we're going to be missing Solomon Hill big time. And it's like that's just life as a Pelicans fan, you know. And yeah. my whole thing was, you know, like, Resign Cousins this year, and then you start building. Then you don't have to worry about overpaying Solomon Hill. You become an attractive free agent destination, I would think, 
but really, you just we just got to get there. And really, the one optimistic point to me is that you look at the Western Conference standings, and the Pelicans, I believe, are eighth right now. They've been eighth or seventh pretty much all year. And it looks like there is a big drop-off for the remaining seven teams. The one really is Utah, and with Rudy Gobert out, you would think that you could make some separation. That's the crazy thing. Um, Record-wise, you would think the Pelicans maybe not be out of it entirely, but at, what, 15 and 16, 15 and 15, whatever they are, you think, oh, man, we got a long way to go. So many teams to leapfrog over. But I'm just looking at the standings right now. At 15 and 16, they're only a game out of fifth place. Yeah, I can imagine. I'm sure Oklahoma City is going to put it together with all that talent, but you can just imagine that Portland and Denver are having the same conversations that we have, where they're like, we're just middling, we can't get it going if we just did this one thing and separate from the pack, you know, but I feel like the three of us are going to be clumped together pretty much all year. Yeah, and I just, I fear that um, that Denver game they let slipped away a couple of nights ago. You lose the tiebreaker to Denver the, for the series, for the season, excuse me. And I just think that's going to really bite them come, um, come April because either you're talking avoiding Houston in round one or let's assume Golden State gets the one. So you're talking about either potentially avoiding Golden State round one or that tiebreaker, you might be nine, they might be eight, you're on the outside looking in because they have that two out of three tiebreaker because you blew a big lead in Denver a couple of nights ago. Yeah, and I mean, you know, the games that matter, and of course we could always go off on a tangent of the Pelicans should be in the Eastern Conference, but that's really pretty irrelevant right now considering that I think we – roster-wise, are easily one of the eight best teams in the Western Conference. Yeah, I, I would agree. I would absolutely agree with that. Um, do you fear Cousins doesn't resign at the end of the season? Because I don't actually – I can't see them trading Cousins. That I'm almost certain of. I have nothing to go off of that. It's just my gut feeling. They're not going to trade him by dead, all-star dead, or trade deadline. But do you fear he's not going to come back? I mean, of course I fear because almost nothing is going right with this franchise. Granted, it's a short history, but I mean, you know, you see, obviously he says he wants to be here. and But, I mean, we've seen that before, you know, with Durant in Oklahoma City and LeBron in Cleveland the first round. And, you know, guys just get – and, I mean, those guys were competing for championships. Cousins yeah. has not even been close. And, you know, who's to say that Washington and Cleveland wouldn't break the bank for him and could probably make a better pitch to him than we can? And, I mean, just, you know, naturally I haven't, as a lifelong Pelicans slash Hornets fan, I'm not used to assuming, oh, everything will work out in the end, you know? Yeah, I just, it's – I'm nervous. And and. Actually, I kind of like being nervous because for so long, you know, the Pelicans slash Hornets, they've just kind of been, you know, just bad and irrelevant. And, and in a weird way, it's kind of good to have these nerves about, oh, man, what if this blows up again? I don't want that to happen because then I go back to being sad and hating basketball. But I, I, I said and I wrote about it feels like basketball actually kind of starts to matter now these days. You get that same sentiment, too? Yeah, definitely. This is even, even though we talked about 
how frustrating this year has been, this is still like the most exciting season we've had here in a long time. Probably you could argue 10 years since that great uh, 2007 Hornets team. But I mean, this fear, because that's the whole problem is that I want to enjoy, we have two superstars who are dominating night in and night out. And I want to enjoy it. The fact that they're even competitive, you know, I used to, when I would watch the games every night and we get killed and I'd just say, you know, man, just if they could be competitive, I'd be entertained. And I want to be entertained, but the fact that I think so much of it hinges on this season just make you know, where in a sense, every game almost feels like a playoff game because it's yeah. so important. And it's all because of that DeMarcus Cousins contract. Yeah. Okay. So last bit before we move on to LSU, just it's the, it's the ultimate question. Like, is this team going to be in the playoffs? I think so. Just looking at, you know, the other teams they face where, you know, I think this team is still underachieving right now, but I don't think the teams that they're around are underachieving. You know, I think Denver is right about where they should be. Denver and Portland are right about where they should be with their roster. Oklahoma City is underachieving, so I think they'll put it together. But in that sense, I don't think Portland and Denver are going to improve. I have faith that the Pels likely will improve. I don't think they could – I don't think they're going to tank and just have the bottom completely fall out unless, you know, God forbid an injury. But I do think they will be in it at the end. And, you know, if that's enough to convince Cousins to resign, I, I hope so. That's yeah, really- and I- I'm looking at not. I'm not looking at the teams above them. I'm looking at the teams behind them. And Utah is going to have Gobert out for a while. And I mean, be, beyond that, the Clippers, the Lakers, the Kings, Suns, Grizzlies, and Dallas. Yeah. You're going to tell me nine teams that could make the playoffs. Those bottom six are not to worry about. Yeah. So I think that's the that's the one thing working in New Orleans' favor right now is that they're they're in the in crowd right now. And and I guess it just depends on what happens with Utah. How quickly Gobert gets back how they fare without him. But I think as long as you can hold serve and you keep in the, the playoff picture, I think that'll pay off and you'll get that uh, – you'll get in come April. Yeah, it really doesn't mean much in the end, but I think when was the last time we were third in the Southwest Division where Memphis and Dallas are both so far beneath us? That's crazy to imagine because yeah. even when we made the playoffs in 2015, all five teams in our division made it. Yeah. This is the most yeah. star thing ever. I think that's a pretty interesting way to look at it. Yeah. At least those two um, are bad. Yeah, at least at least it, it finally happened. Memphis and Dallas bottomed out. So yeah, let's let's go ahead and move on. Let's talk LSU now. So LSU's got Notre Dame. LSU hasn't played Notre Dame since that uh controversial Music City Bowl from uh twenty fourteen. I was there, I was a senior in Tiger Band and uh Cragthorpe definitely scored. I don't care what anybody says he scored. Um, so what are your thoughts? LSU back again in the Citrus Bowl, which makes me kind of feel a little funny, kind of like, ah, man, we're going back to the Citrus Bowl, so whatever. Yeah, uh, it's funny you mentioned that uh, Music City Bowl. I've got a fun column coming out for In the Valley Chick soon about how I had my – I was a junior in high school, so that was over our Christmas break. I had had my wisdom teeth removed that morning of the game. So that was like, I had my procedure like what, like 8 a.m. And then it was a 2.30, it was an afternoon 2.30 game on, it was like a Tuesday or something. And I had been 
sleeping, recovering, and I woke up just a little before the game, and I just felt awful. I, you know, um, my mom is a dentist, which is different from she didn't do my procedure because she's not like an oral surgeon who did it. But my mom, being familiar with wisdom teeth, I got mine out very early before they were coming in. You know, people, their wisdom teeth start to come in, and so they get them removed. But my mom got mine out super early so I could do it over break and not miss any school. And because of that, my recovery time was like two weeks for it. Most people are over in a couple of days. And I was just miserable for most of that game. And fans will remember, that was really the game that Leonard Fournette arrived. That was his freshman year. It had been an awful – I don't want to say an awful year, just by LSU standards, an awful year where we – we were still eight and four, but Anthony Jennings was our quarterback, and that was pretty rough. But that game, Leonard Fournette just completely took over. And it was one point, it was 14 7 Notre Dame in the second quarter, and they kicked off. And mm-hmm. Fournette was still receiving kickoffs at this time, and he just breaks it 100 yeah. yards to the. And in well, my once head, upon a time, once yeah, upon a time, kids, Leonard Fournette used to return kicks. Yeah, I believe that was one of his conditions on coming to LSU. He said, I want to return kickoffs. And Miles said, okay, you can. So he did for most of that year. But uh, anyway, so it's 14-7 Notre Dame. I'm watching it with my dad. Just I can't even move. I'm just in so much pain. And so Notre Dame kicks off and Fournette breaks it. And my dad is there. And he's going, yes, 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 like cheering as Fournette breaks. And I just, in my head, I'm super excited. I'm going nuts. But all I can go is just I can feel like, Oh wow, with my with all these rags in my mouth, bleeding from my gums, and I'm like, this is not how I should experience this. This is an incredible moment, and I'm just sitting here almost motionless in pain. And I, and yeah, as you talked about, they said Cragthorpe didn't score. He definitely did. Notre Dame ends up winning on a field goal as time expires. And so you guys can check out my whole column. Um, that entire game, but the moral of the story is I'm still pretty ticked off over that game because that was a rough experience for me. Yeah, I'm I'm irritated too, and I guess it's a rational irritation, maybe because it's only because it's Notre Dame. But, I mean, that wasn't a good LSU team. That team won, what, eight games, maybe nine games? That was, like, maybe the worst LSU team probably of this decade. But I guess just the way that game went down – and you just felt jobbed, and, you know, that was also the year where you kind of got screwed in the Alabama game, and you got blown out by Auburn. You just had all these bad losses that just left such bad taste in your mouth. So what about this edition? Or go go ahead, go go ahead. The the other thing about that 2014 team is I think they were worse than people give them credit for just because that was peak SEC West just destroying each other. Because every team from the SEC West made a bowl game that year. Because you had Alabama, who was in the playoff, of course. Mississippi State, led by Dak Prescott, who they were number one going into late November and still undefeated. Um, Ole Miss with Dr. Bo, Bo Wallace, just shredding people on offense. Of course, that's funny to look back on now, but at the time, they were obviously very good. You had LSU, you had Auburn with Nick Marshall coming off barely losing the national championship. You had A&M, who, you know, started off great. But, I mean, 
their A&M. They were the worst team by default, and they were still ranked number five for, like, a whole month of the season. And then you had Arkansas, who finally made a bowl game under Bielema, where you think, okay, they're the one weak link in the SEC. And then they shut out LSU and Ole Miss at home in back-to-back weeks, yep. and you're like, God, yep. we you I was there. A break. And so really, I was there. I, I froze my ass off. Jeez, man, I, that team probably was not as bad as people remember. It was just we all beat up on each other in that division. So that's just something that you know you wanted to end that season on a high yeah. note going next year. And oh boy, that was yeah. Rough. And and that was um that was interesting because that team. You know that that class that Fournette, Adams, Malachi Dupree, that was a that was the class where you thought, okay, we're gonna get back, and it's it's a shame that they never did. And the biggest the biggest win that recruiting class has to their name right now is what a, a Texas Bowl win over Texas Tech or the I guess the Citrus Bowl too because that was that was their year, but. Listen, speaking of, so what are we thinking about this edition of the Citrus Bowl and this edition of Notre Dame? I mean, it's pretty weird because, you know, obviously in 2016, if you've been on college football Twitter, you know that Notre Dame went 4-8 and eight in 2016. It was one of our favorite things to celebrate from that year in sports. And then it was pretty rough this year when, you know, they were winning, they were beating non-conference teams. They barely lost at home to Georgia. And then we kind of realized at one point, like, dang it, Notre Dame is actually pretty good again, it looks like. And they had that one loss to Georgia, and then they went to Miami. And I know a lot of people don't like Miami. I'm, I'm sad to say I'm too young to really remember the days when it was easy to hate Miami like you do a Notre Dame at Ohio State. But, man, that was a lot of fun, seeing Miami just completely eviscerate Notre Dame in that game. And then they, I believe, those were their only three losses. That, Georgia, and Stanford, I believe. Yeah, because they beat the brakes off of USC a couple weeks later. Yeah, that USC game was really when we figured out that, like, oh, I guess they are good this year. They're not the team that went 4-8 and eight last year. And, and, and just to remind because they, they went what last year? It's, just, it's always fun to joke about. So what was their name's record last year? In 2016, if you have not heard, let me just say it again. Notre Dame went – Four and eight in 2016. Good. Number ten preseason. Number ten Good. in the preseason. Good. That so, was well, that was the year they beat Texas, right? And and that yeah. was the oh man, Notre Dame and Texas are back, and they neither neither of them were. Um, yeah. I'd be lying yeah. if I said I've seen Notre Dame play much this year. Um, I just know that they they beat the breaks off of USC, and they had said breaks beaten off of them by. The my by Miami in Miami, I know they have that running back, which makes me a little nervous that he might do some things against this random defense because a shoe this year. Yeah, they um, Josh Adams is their running back, who is really most of their offense, but it is also worth mentioning they had um, two of their starting receivers won't be. I know one of them. Two guys were arrested. Kevin Steverson um, and running back C.J. Holmes were arrested the other day and won't be playing in the game. And then I believe they have another receiver who's injured who won't play in the game. But either way, so considering how depleted their um, 
Receivers are definitely Josh Adams is definitely the name you need to know for Notre Dame going into this game. And I'm looking at the line, LSU. I don't know if you're old enough to gamble yet, Evan. And for all our listeners, we don't uh, necessarily approve of gambling, but LSU is a three-point favorite. So take that with what you will. So we've talked LSU, we've talked the Pelicans, but we can forget all that because this is the biggest week of the NFL season. And it's against maybe not my most hated team, but if you guys don't follow Evan, please follow Evan because he has really funny, really true Atlanta Falcon tweets. And they're incredibly petty and they make me laugh every time. I think I like and retweet every single one of them. So let's get to it, Evan, because I, I know you've been dying to talk about this. Saints-Falcons, Sunday night or Sunday afternoon in the Superdome for basically the NFC South. What are you feeling? I am feeling all whatever emotion keeps you from sleeping, I'm feeling it because I'm incredibly excited, incredibly nervous, incredibly terrified of what would happen if the Saints lose, and I'm just feeling so many emotions for this game. But really, like, I just want it to be 11.50 a.m. on Sunday at this point. I'm just over everything else. And this game, I mean, because all offseason, like you said, all offseason, I've been having a field day with the Falcons. But the whole time I was in the back of my head, I'm thinking, like, man, we really better back it up when we play them this year. And then that first game was just, that hurts so much, but I think that's really going to make us want it even more in this next game. And also the stakes. You know, a lot of people who don't aren't Saints or Falcons fans or just casual football fans, they know, like, oh, yeah, the NFC South, uh, most of them really don't like each other. But the Saints and Falcons, they were created, the Saints were, first season was 1967, the Falcons were 1966. And for most of our history, we were just terrible both teams were just so awful that the one thing you rooted for was to beat the Falcons because that's what makes your season a success when you're terrible every year. But now that we're playing with actual stakes, it's just crazy. We're not used to this in a Saints-Falcons game. So in a lot of ways, I don't know what to expect except that the Superdome will be a madhouse, but – I'm I'm just feeling a lot of emotions about this game. Yeah, I um I I'm nervous because not so much because I think the Falcons are better, but just because you I mean you know how these division divisional opponents go, you just know each other so well. And that first game, Saints probably should have won, but they didn't, and there's a lot riding on it. And I just I just want to get business taken care of. And I don't know if you felt the same way, but when I was watching that Thursday night game right before Breeze threw that interception, like my spidey sense started going off. I started having that bad feeling like, oh no, he's going to do something. Couldn't tell you what, but I felt something was going off. And I was doubly conflicted because it was my beloved Dion Jones making that pick. So I was, I was happy that was Dion, but I was like, well, damn, that's, that's a bummer. Um, but all that being said, I I think New Orleans takes care of business at home. I think that game really irritated them. The whole stuff with Camara and Atlanta 
having a former ref who used to be a Falcon. I mean, the Saints are kind of a petty organization as it is. I think they'll they'll pull out all the stops. The what what did what did Peyton say about the Jets? Something about like don't eat the cheese or whatever that is. That's a real football guy move of him to say that. I think they take care of this, and I'm glad they end with Tampa Bay because really, I think they can end up 12 and four and winning the South and getting at least one home game. Yeah, I think the funny thing that also about these last few weeks is, you know, everyone's saying not only is the NFC South, you know, the national media is saying this. You look at sports and they talk about, all right, who's going to win the NFC South? You got the 10-4 and four Saints, the 10-4 and four Panthers, and the 9-5 and five Falcons. I'm like, man, this division is great. And that makes me want to take you back to three years ago in 2014 when – these are the divisions at this point leading into week 16 and 2014, you have this exact same scenario where the Saints host the Falcons in week 16 and go to Tampa in week 17, and Carolina goes to Atlanta in week 17, and the Saints need to win both to win the division. And if the Saints lose to the Falcons, then Panthers and Falcons can play for the division. It's literally the same scenario except the Saints are 6-8, and eight the Panthers are five, eight, and one, and the Falcons are five and nine, yep. which it's exactly like this scenario, except all three teams were awful. Yeah. And we're now here in the same spot three years later with all three teams that I believe are good enough to not just make the playoffs, but win a couple games. Yeah. Um, that Panthers team also, they, they went on to win the South and, they they won a playoff game too because they won the division, so they got a home game. They played Arizona, who I think they had was it John Skelton or David Lindsay, one of those scrubs, not Carson Palmer, yeah. Cardinal quarterbacks. With Carson Palmer, I didn't think Carolina wins that game, but the fact that that team they ended Carolina actually won four straight. They were three eight and one at the yeah. end of that year, tied with Cincinnati, and they won four straight. Yeah, uh, one yeah. that lost in Seattle, who was just a buzzsaw at that point. But that yeah. led to that great 15 and one season where they went to the Super Bowl. Um, that finish, it was funny, from the god-awful 2014 NFC South actually created uh, some of these good teams here three that, years later. That, that whole season was just, at least for the South, was just an abomination. Um what are you feeling playoff chances wise for the Saints? Because I think we can both agree that even if they don't win the South, th- this Saints team still makes the postseason, right? Especially at ten wins now, there's little to no chance they don't make it. Yeah, I don't really see how they lose both of these last two games. Because I mean, if they do, they probably don't deserve to get in. But you're, we're probably looking at a ten and six Seattle or Dallas not getting in. So. If you're in the playoffs this year, then, like, you definitely earned it. You know, there's no um, 2010 Seattle or anything like that. So it really depends. And the interesting thing is the Saints are pretty much at no chance at a first-round buy. So we're talking the three or four seed. And I really think you're going to see them host Atlanta or Carolina and play a team for the third time this season, which I don't know how I feel about that in the sense that, you know, it's a familiar opponent for us, but it's also not, you know, the last time the Saints had a home playoff team, they hosted the Detroit Lions who were in the playoffs for the first time in like more than a decade. And the Lions, 
were just terrified of that. And they put it, they played a pretty good game, but you could just see that the Superdome and the Saints offense won that game. But this year, you know, the team, it'll just be like, whatever, all right, we're back in the Superdome. So that makes me a little nervous about that first playoff game. Yeah, I uh, I was thinking about it before I, I had called you and we started this. I was talking to myself last night. I was kind of doing a power rankings of what potential playoff teams do I want no part of come January. And oddly enough, the Falcons and the Panthers are kind of like the 1A the 1B. Not necessarily because I'm afraid of either of them, but because I just don't want to play a divisional team for a third time. I just don't like that. that that's just some bad juju waiting to happen, in my opinion. Um, yeah. That being said, if I'm going, if, if the Panthers and the Falcons are my 1A, 1B, I, I don't know how much of a believer you are in the Rams, Evan, but I don't want any part of Los Angeles right now. Um, I, and I know when they went out to L.A., in what late October, early November, they got beat, but they didn't have Marshawn Lattimore. I think Ken Crowley might have missed that game, or at least missed some time. Yeah, those, those starting corners were at. I just, that, yeah, I, I just, well. I still don't want any part of them because that Rams defense is for real. It's always been for real, and it only helps that Wade Wade uh, Phillips is the uh, defensive coordinator, and I just feel like Todd Gurley might just run roughshod on New Orleans out there. It really makes me think of the Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man meme with the Saints <laughs> and the Rams where, you know, you got a great run game and a great defense that that travels well in the playoffs, and then you got a high-powered passing offense that you can turn on when you need it. And really that's, I mean, all the ingredients you need, especially that run game is the biggest thing. And, I mean, I don't know if, throughout all 15 weeks of this season so far, that there has been a more impressive performance than what they did last week with Seattle. I don't know, because even even the past couple of years, if you go to Seattle and win in Seattle, that was always a big deal. But just, just take a sledgehammer to the Seahawks. That was the holy shit moment of the season, I think. I also I don't know how to feel about Minnesota if the Saints were to play the Vikings in the postseason, because that Saints team that went up there and lost in week one, I mean, I don't know how much Lattimore played, but he wasn't what he was then. Kamara, I don't even think saw the field. That Saints team isn't the team that lost in week one. So I think their chances are a little bit better. But also that Vikings defense is for real, too. And I think they would give the Saints a little bit of fits. You know, I'm just waiting for whatever's going to happen to Minnesota to keep this Super Bowl host curse going. You know, a team that hosts the Super Bowl has never played in the game, and I'm just waiting for the Vikings to show us something that says they can't go to the Super Bowl, because to me, I if I was, like, you know, not a super biased Saints fan and was picking the best team in the NFC, right now, maybe even if Philly had Carson Wentz, I would still go with Minnesota as my pick to go to the Super Bowl, because, I mean, they just they just do everything well if you look at that team. And they don't make mistakes to beat themselves. You know, like the Saints have had, it seems like, so many turnovers and how they kept the Jets in that game last week. Minnesota doesn't do that. And I just am struggling. This, And while I agree with you that I do think the Saints would play better up there than they did week one, because the other thing about that week one game, you know, it was 29-19. to 19, And that last touchdown, the only touchdown of the game, since that was in garbage time. And so you're thinking – 
oh, 29-12, that Minnesota destroyed them. They throttled them. You look at it, the Saints had four field goals in the red zone. They were moving the ball on that defense. It was just once once they got down there in the red zone, they just faltered. And, you know, that's – you're talking about four plays completely changing the complexity of that game. And also, the other thing about that game is there was a whole – quote-unquote Adrian Peterson revenge game, which obviously won't be a factor if we play them again. But I do think it would be – and also remember Minnesota had Bradford who played out of his mind, and I'm sure if you put Case Keenan in that same game the way our defense played, it would be the same. But I almost – obviously I want to see the Saints play the Vikings because it means they're moving on in the playoffs, but I really want to see it to see, you know, just how it would go compared to last time since both teams are – pretty drastically different from where they were uh, back in week one. Yeah, and I guess I just I just had this thought. If the Saints do indeed get out of round one, I, I guess as weird as it sounds, I think I'd rather them go to Minnesota just because maybe the dome factor kind of cancels out any – I mean, who knows what happens in the L.A. in January. Maybe it's wet. Maybe it's rainy and the conditions get play a factor. Maybe just being inside and control temperatures, maybe that kind of – keeps the Saints uh, offense at what we expect it to be. It's weird because um, during the eight-game win streak that they had, when I was super confident Saints fan, I'm going to, like, imitate myself. Uh, I, I was just thinking – I was looking at all the other NFC teams, and I was like, oh, Philadelphia, they've never done it before. They got Carson Wentz. He's never been there. And Minnesota, they got Case Keenum. Who the fuck is Case Keenum? He's some nobody in L.A., they got Jared Goff. Who the fuck is Jared Goff? He's supposed to be a bust. But now I don't feel that anymore because I think Goff has turned a corner. Keenum is at least keeping the ship steady. And, yeah, even with wins out, Philadelphia still has a lot of talent. Maybe they're not the favorites in the NFC anymore. I think we both agree that might be Minnesota, maybe L.A. So I'm not as confident as I was in the postseason because I thought middle of that eight-game win streak, we win number six, seven, eight. Oh. Yeah, hell yeah, this team's going to win the Super Bowl. Don't really feel that anymore. Yeah, I'm with you. And the other thing about the quarterbacks that I agree with you that, you know, the whole, like, we got Drew Brees, they got a guy that's brand new, doesn't really work anymore. Look at the playoffs last year where you had, in the NFC, you have um, the top two seeds were Dak Prescott and Matt Ryan. And so you say, oh, the other guys, the Super Bowl winners and Aaron Rodgers, Russell Wilson, Eli Manning, they're going to take care of those guys. And it's like, well, no, they didn't. Eli Manning yeah. got throttled in Green Bay. Green Bay beats Dallas. And of course they did. But Russell Wilson was destroyed in Atlanta, and then Atlanta destroys Aaron Rodgers. And Matt Ryan just cruises along all postseason. You know, it really – you throw a lot of that previous stuff out the window once you get to the playoffs. Yeah, and um, I, I don't know if you share the same sentiment as me, Evan, but I think – kind of regardless of what happens well not regardless as long as the saints win the division this year they can't really do any wrong in my eyes like when i look back on this season 10 20 years from now because you know i wasn't expecting much of anything from this team and then they start zero and two and then if they close out what 12 and 2 11 and 3 and win the south and host a playoff game maybe maybe even win a playoff game you know this Saints team, they're going to be cool in my book, kind of no matter what happens. And that's different from, like, the 11 team 
the one that went to San Francisco and lost to the 49ers. And if they don't at least win the Super Bowl, they at least play New England and Indianapolis for the Super Bowl. And like that 2013 team got out to a hot start and they were leading the South. They were on cruise control and then they let the South slip away and they were a wild card. I don't, I'm not going to have those same kind of like woulda, coulda, shoulda feelings about this team that I do those past two playoff teams. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. My dad, you know, we started off week one, we got blown out at Minnesota. And the whole thing coming in, I had pretty high expectations coming into this season because, you know, everyone's saying, oh, you know, three straight years of seven and nine. And I said, look closer at those nine last year. You talk about in 2016, some of the most bizarre close losses you've ever seen where, you know, Raiders go for two and – so that's a win. That's a loss that could have been a win. Giants block and return a field goal. That's a loss that could have been a win. Um, yep. Kansas City, if Nick Fairley does commit a penalty, that could be a win. You know, Denver with a two-point conversion. You know, all these crazy losses last year, and I was saying all offseason, they were so close in so many losses last year. They just flipped that the other way, and then they're going to be good. And then these first two wins – these first, um, excuse me, these first two losses this year when we started 0-2 to Minnesota, New England, I, my dad and I were talking like, my God, they don't even look like they belong in the same field. They've just completely fallen yeah. apart. And he, like, I'm going to admit, I had a stat ready um, where week three they won at Carolina, um, to, and that started the whole winning streak. Um, I believe – if the Saints had lost that game, that would have meant Sean Payton in his career would have had a losing record without Greg Williams. I believe I had that stat prepped and ready to tweet if we lost to Carolina, and of course we didn't. But I, 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 I'm not afraid to say I'd pretty much given up all hope on the just the Breeze Payton era. I thought it was done after two games yeah. this year, and it like you said. And the other thing about looking back on this year is hopefully we'll look back on this year as the year we were introduced into two Saints legends in Alvin Kamara and Marshawn Lattimore because, I mean, my God, two rookies, like arguably our two most important players on offense and defense, that's just incredible. Yeah, they are just, especially defensively, they are just – a world better when Lattimore is out there and Lattimore's healthy. Like we talked about that, that Rams game, it was so obvious he wasn't out there. Crowley, Crowley too, but Lattimore is such a difference maker. And I was, I'll admit, I was a little skeptical about Marshawn Lattimore because I, I had heard about the, uh, the hamstring issues that he'd had at Ohio State. And then I thought I, I saw something about that they were flaring up again in training camp and he didn't play that many games in college. So I was thinking, well, here goes the Saints picking some guy that doesn't have much experience, has injury history, and I guess anytime you have an injury-riddled corner with no experience, you just got to take him. And yeah. uh, I was wrong. I was dead wrong about that. He's a stud. And is it hyperbolic to say he might already be the best corner in Saints history? I mean, if he yeah, no. keeps going the way he's going? He – um. I think skeptical is also a good word to sum up how I felt about it because, you know, I just don't trust corners as a Saints fan. I don't trust yeah. defensive back. It, and it's still weird to me how, you know, like he's on offense. I'm like, oh, throw it to Michael Thomas. He'll be open. Oh, dump it off to Alvin Kamara. He'll make a move and get a few yards. Like I'm confident, and I know these guys are going to deliver. 
But like as a corner, it's still weird for me to say, oh, you don't have, if they throw it to Lattimore, I'm good. I don't have to worry. Like I'm still scared. I still cannot wrap my mind around the fact that the Saints have a guy that won't allow the other team to catch the ball. It's so weird yeah. to me still. I, I was texting a friend during the, uh, I think the Bears game, and it was like, what, 20 to 12, something like that, and Chicago just got the ball back late. And I was like, hey, they got this. They have this. Um, it never, never crossed my mind that Trubisky would lead the Bears down the field and tie the game up. Never, never had that fear because I trusted Lattimore. I trusted Crowley. Um, I like Marcus William. I like Von Bell. I like the uh, defensive line. I mean, my God, can we just – Cameron Jordan is going to be – such a good player for the rest of his career. And I'm scared he's not going to get the recognition he's going to deserve when that career is over. Yeah. And I'm hoping maybe honestly now, I think he might just considering that not only are the Saints succeeding, you know, it's the defense that's really carrying them. I think depending on how this year goes and also considering that you're likely looking at Jordan and Lattimore being around for a long time after breeze is over. And when you need a new face of the franchise, He's the type of guy that people love, you know, because also, like, you know, he has a great personality. You know, he's not like Marcus Colson. Not that there's anything wrong with being Marcus Colson, but Cam Jordan does everything he can to get attention, and, you know, he deserves it. He is just incredible. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up Marcus Colson because that's going to kind of segue into what we're going to end on. So, Reggie Bush um, officially retired from uh, football earlier in the week. Bush, of course, was the first pick of the Sean Payton era, number two overall out of uh, USC. And um, really just kind of the, the, the first, a- after the Brees signing, honestly, I think the, the Bush pick was more, wow, this team might be something because nobody was sure about Brees. So what are your thoughts about Bush as a whole? Was he, I guess this is my first question. Was Reggie Bush a bust? No, he was not. And like, even you can make the argument that he um, underachieved maybe during his time. Really, I think also, if you consider the fact that you look now at how a Sean Payton offense is and you say, oh, well, of course, that's what he's going to do. You know, I remember um, a Tennessee fan saying pretty much the opposite when we drafted Kamara. They said, well, dang, Kamara's great, but now he's not going to get enough touches. And really, you know, it's all about perspective. You know, Reggie Bush touched the ball every play at USC, and then you have a guy, Kamara, who was definitely underutilized at Tennessee, and then he gets here in the Sean Payton offense where he gets the ball, you know, once every couple of plays, and he's going to be rookie of the year. And Reggie Bush, also just you talked about it, just the excitement he brought where everybody was talking about the Saints because of him. And really, I don't know if – I'm sure the Saints are still good, but I don't know if it's this good if they draft Mario Williams, if I'm being honest. Yeah, I – um so – that draft, that was back when people forget this. Um, the draft used to just be one day long. It was on a Saturday, and it was started at like 
you know, 9, 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, something like that. It would go all day long. It's not like the Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, or whatever three days they, they broadcast it on. Um, I remember watching that draft with my dad. And, of course, Houston was going to take Reggie Bush. Who wouldn't take Reggie Bush? Why wouldn't you take Reggie Bush? Reggie Bush was the best college player I'd ever seen in my life up until this point and maybe might be the best college paper college player I'll ever see. He could just do everything. He could catch the ball. He could run with it. He can make everybody and anybody miss. I, you know, there's that um, things, the Fresno state game where he just cuts on the dime, puts the ball around his arm and cuts, cuts, right. Scores a touchdown. And then you see Houston takes Mario Williams and then you know, Twitter wasn't around back then, but if there was, there could have been just such an explosion of, wait, what the hell did the Texans just do? They picked who? Mario Williams. Who's Mario Williams? And then I remember, like, the pieces starting to come together in my mind. I was like, wait, so the Texans passed on Bush and the Saints. They're they're picking second. Holy crap, they're going to take Reggie Bush, aren't they? And they did. And it was awesome. And I remember talking to so my mom's a teacher and I remember going to my mom's school after my school ended. I was talking to the janitor who I got really close with and we would always talk sports and he would he told me, Man, you know, between the the Bree signing and this Reggie Bush kid, the Saints, this Saints team might actually win a Super Bowl. And it was such a weird concept to actually say, but that was the first time ever you could actually think, No, really, this Saints team might win a Super Bowl. They might go to heights they'd never been to before. I'm going to agree with you. Bush, Bush wasn't a bus, but he wasn't what he was supposed to be coming out of USC. I think both things can be true. I don't think he was an underwhelming pro, but there were moments where he would see, you would see flashes and it was, it was mainly in new Orleans because yeah. he hadn't really, he really hadn't quite emerged as the runner that he became in, uh, most notably Miami and toward the end in Detroit. But that New Orleans, you know, when he brought the punt back against Tampa, when he caught 88 passes as a rookie, when he did the the double reverse against Pittsburgh, there was just all these flashes like, man, if he could just put it all together, he could be the best back in football. And really, it kind of goes back to my favorite Reggie Bush memory. I never saw him as a complete running back until that um that Arizona playoff game where he had maybe the best game any running backs ever had in a Saints uniform I would argue um and I, I like to joke now uh, with my friends you know that was the game he had just had his Heisman stripped and you know you like to joke like oh look at Reggie he's running for his Heisman he's trying to get his Heisman back and uh and I was also back when he was dating Kim Kardashian and Kim Kardashian was in the Superdome. And I love that Kim Kardashian is just forever linked to that Saints team. He's like, oh, yeah, I guess she's um, she's one of us now. Yeah, that was a great moment. The other I tweeted this a few weeks ago about um, that Arizona game. And, you know, this was this is 100 percent me bias as a Saints fan, but. You know, there was that punt return at the end where we really said, oh, my God, this is the best game Reggie Bush has ever had. But early in the game, he had the one of the most ridiculous touchdowns you will ever see 
in in really college football, but especially in the NFL. This is just insane where he kind of runs to the side into a guy and then just sidesteps sideways and then just bolts up the field. I mean, if you're listening to this, please go on YouTube and Google Reggie Bush touchdown Arizona playoffs. But I tweeted a couple of weeks ago that this is 100% a biased opinion as a Saints fan, but I don't care. That run was more impressive than Marshawn Lynch against us in the playoffs. <laughs> and I know that there is no way that that is correct because the stakes of the Lynch run obviously make that such a bigger deal. But in terms of just jaw dropping just in a vacuum, if you just don't look at the score or the scenario and you just look at what's happening, that Arizona run just blew my mind. A lot of, if anyone's listening to this thinking, okay, now what is this guy talking about if he thinks that run was better than Marshawn Lynch? But to me, that run is just does not make sense. It did not make any sense at all that he pulled that off, and yet he did, and was yeah, very that, casual about it afterwards. He he looked like the USC Reggie Bush, just doing against some just some bunch of college chumps that had no chance, and Arizona that day had no chance against them. Um, Reggie Bush also really good Madden running back to play with. I don't know if, how often you played Madden, but like. You could do a lot of fun stuff with Reggie Bush and Madden. Like you could get twenty yards on a punt return every time with Bush. And you yeah. could just swing it to him out of the backfield for a pass, a screen pass, whatever. You could just eat people up with Reggie on uh, on Madden. When they had uh Madden eleven, which was my favorite one because Drew Brees was on the cover and it was right after the Super Bowl, but also yep. like I feel like gameplay wise, Same. that was my favorite Same. one. What I would do is you would go to the formation, and I'd do the formation with split backs where Drew had Reggie Bush on the left and Pierre Thomas on the right, and you could you could do anything. I could go 19-0 and running every offensive play out of that formation. It was just not fair at all. Yeah. I also I remember going back to the Arizona thing right quick, kind of leading up to the Atlanta game. Um, that was the game where Reggie brought the bat out, the whole bring the wood spiel thing and uh i remember watching the uh the uh america's game that nfl network little hour-long documentary on all the uh super bowl teams yeah and peyton said something like uh i told reggie if he was going to do that he better bring it uh he better back that talk up and by god he did yeah and uh you know i've seen the petitions that they want him to come out and do it again for the Atlanta game. I don't think that's going to happen. I believe he has to work for NFL Network. But, like, why can't why can't Reggie Bush work live from New Orleans? That way he's still honoring his work commitment but still lighting the fire in the Super Yeah, at first I was, like, I was thinking to myself, um, well, that stinks he won't get to do this, but maybe he'll get to do it for whatever playoff game we have. But then I just realized why it was – a huge missed opportunity for this weekend and why it would be perfect because as everybody remembers, Reggie Bush wears number 25. And this Sunday, the Saints will host the Atlanta Falcons, who you may recall were up 25 in the Super Bowl. So for oh. him to knock out the bat this game with all of them is really a missed opportunity and very unfortunate. So. If the Saints do end up hosting the Falcons in the playoffs, 
and cannot get Reggie Bush to run out with the bat wearing a number 25 jersey, then I will be beyond heartbroken. Yeah, they, uh, the Saints could win the Super Bowl, and it won't matter because they missed that golden opportunity to just uh, stick it to the Falcons one more time. Yeah, a, a tainted championship, for sure. sure. Um, although, really, honestly, now, if we're going to do that, we can just twer- tweak the Falcons every single time. Because the uh, 28-3 jokes, those will always be funny. The 4-8 and eight jokes, there's always going to be funny. 3-1 Golden State, they're always going to be funny, too. Because the internet is just the greatest gift that um, God's ever gifted us. I always think about, like, why did I even watch sports before I had Twitter? You know, how is this nearly as fun? Yeah, basketball Twitter is amazing. I love basketball Twitter. I will, uh, I will miss several key moments because I'm just kicking it back with all my NBA Twitter friends because who yeah. needs real friends when you have Twitter friends? Exactly. So this was a good talk. Uh, again, if you guys enjoy Evan Sachs, if you want to see more of his super biased but super accurate Saints, Pelicans tweets, his super petty but super true Falcon jokes, you can follow him at, uh, at Evan Sachs. He is the uh, news editor at the Daily Reveille from my alma mater, LSU. They, got, they always do great work over there. And – You'll be able to read some calls from him from uh, at the uh, and the Valley Shook, which read your first thing, Evan. Can't wait for your second thing. You got anything else to plug before we bid adieu? Um, no, not really. Just God, I hope uh, Saints win Sunday. Yeah, same. Yeah. So, thanks, you guys. Remember to uh, download, subscribe, or whatever it is. I don't know. I got to figure out how to do all that stuff. I'm not that tech savvy, but. Listen to this podcast if it comes out because I'm producing it and there's a chance this podcast might never even make it to air. So who knows? But we'll talk to you later, guys. Shutter Sound Music. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Johnny got a toy golf set when he was three, and from that day on, he was hooked. All he wanted to do was golf, golf, golf. He'd be on the links before school, after school. All he ever wanted was to go pro. And then, one day, when he was holding his grandson and thinking about his 12th handicap, Johnny realized it just might not happen for him. But you know what did happen for him? He switched to Geico and saved a bunch of money on car insurance. So that was good, and so was hanging out with his grandson. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.